If you brought a copy of Scripture with you this morning, you can find the 14th chapter of John, John chapter 14, if you would, please. As we continue in our series this summer, we're titling More Like Jesus, and we are looking at our core values and looking at expositional theological messages which comply with our statement of faith. And today, I have for you a hard word for a soft generation. It is the word obedience. It's also an old word. The use of, or better put, the emphasis of which has fallen on hard times to a people who simply don't like to hear it. But the Bible wasn't written to comply with our likes. It was written to convert our lives. Obedience, according to Walter Klippinger in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, is the supreme test of faith in God and reverence of, uh, of and for Him. It was an act of obedience before us that confirmed the old faith of Abraham as he wielded a knife over his son. It was an act of obedience before us that confirmed the crazy faith of Noah, who had built an ark on dry ground when it had never even rained. It was an act of obedience before us that confirmed the young faith of Daniel, who as a teenager purposed in his heart not to defile himself with the portion of the king's meat. And it was an act of obedience before us that confirmed the selfless faith of Esther, who knowing that her entire people could be annihilated if she did not do what God through her uncle had called her to do, said, if I perish, I perish. And it was an act of obedience before us that confirmed the courageous faith of Stephen, who after preaching the gospel to a hard-necked, hard-hearted people, was being stoned to death and cried out to Jesus, asking him to forgive them for their treacherous act. And since this is a series titled More Like Jesus, it was his life of obedience that confirmed the faith of Jesus himself, who said, I always do those things which please my Father. The word obey is a hard word for a soft generation. Can I get an amen to that? It's in our Bibles. Our English Bibles has the word obey, but it's usually translated listen, hear, conveying the idea of pay attention. It's also translated in this passage repeatedly, keep. You'll be surprised, perhaps, some of you to know that there is no Old Testament Hebrew word for obey. Rather, the word shema or shama is the Hebrew word, and it means to hear. It means to listen. It means to pay attention. It's the word in Deuteronomy 6.4 where it says, hear, O Israel, 
the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the word, Shama. It carries a very obvious ethical meaning to obey, and that's why it's translated, rightly so, obey in our Bibles oftentimes. Listen carefully. Godly obedience begins with giving one's full attention to truth. And we actually have a virtual definition of a, for attentiveness given to us in the book of Proverbs where Solomon writes, My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear you know, to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart. That's why we taught our kids growing up based on that proverb. And we teach our vacation Bible schoolers. Every time we have a VBS with three to 400 kids and it's absolute melee in here, I remind them that listening is, is to, when we pay attention, we do so with our ears, with our eyes, and with our hearts. And that's the reason why you're perturbed. Whenever you're talking to somebody and they pull their phone out and look at it while you're talking. There's actually, there's actually a, a word for that in our own culture now. It's the word fubbing. What a weird word. But I'm guessing about half of you have been fubbing and some of you are doing it right now. And so you show a lack of obedience, attention, respect. The New Testament is the word apakuo. It's an interesting word. Akuo means to, it's the word to hear. And it's the word in Ephesians, translated obey in our English Bibles. Children, obey your parents. Apakuo. Literally to come, to listen underneath. It pictures a, it pictures a, a parent looking down on the child while the child's looking up at the parent. That's the idea. That's the picture in the word. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. And here's the promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long on this earth. But the word obey is the word which means to listen under. In fact, there is a virtual word picture in the word. The word apakulo Kuo conveys the idea of responding to a knock at a door. That's what the word means. So think about this. This is very practical. You're, you're in the house. You're doing something. You're making, you know, you're making supper. You're picking something up. You're watching TV or whatever. And suddenly there's a, what do you do? You drop whatever you're doing and you go to the door, right? That's the idea in this word. That's the exact idea in the word, the New Testament word used about 70 times obey. The word used here in this context in John 14 is the word keep. See if you can see how many times it's used here, beginning in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. There's a whole theology of pneumatology or the Holy Spirit here, but we're not, you'll forgive me for not diving deep into that. I will not leave you as orphans. Remember that. I will come to you 
Yet a little while the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And in that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and, what? Keeps them. He it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not, what? Does not keep my words. And the words that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. If you count them, there's four times the word keep, tereo, is used. It's a blanket word uh, with a, uh, for a spectrum of meaning. Literally means to guard, means to keep watch. It has the ethical implication, as does the Old Testament word, to obey. And that's why it's translated as such in some of your Bibles. About a year ago, in a series we preached here at Sailorville Church on Ruth, I preached a message on obedience. Some of you will remember that. Most of you won't. (laughs) But I, I will remind you of something quickly. We said obedience to God is more important than the risk you take. Again, remember Esther here. The preservation of her whole people. She had to get to the place where she realized that the annihilation, the risk of, of, of her entire people being annihilated, was the risk of that was enough for her to risk her own life and say to her uncle, I will obey. I'll go to the king. And what? If I perish, I perish. And this is what the apostle and Peter particularly meant when he said, we ought to obey God rather than men in Acts 5. And he was, they were taking their, putting their lives at risk. But again, obedience to God is more important than the risk that we take. So what risk are you willing to take to share Jesus with your lost friends and family and workmates? Is it worth the risk of being ostracized? Because that's about the worst that can happen to us in this culture. You say, well, yeah, well, Christians are the whipping boy of the culture. I know that, but I don't see anybody being taken out and shot. Just the other day, I was in Kansas City for an annual event. COVID suspended it for a while. Of my friends that I grew up in high school. Uh, And uh, so they, about 40 years ago, this year, I came to Christ, and I went after them with every fiber of my being. Imagine that. And burnt every bridge all around me. Not intentionally. I won some of them to Christ. But my closest friends, they stiff-armed me for 30 years. And a few years ago, they invited me back in. And I get with them every year for a couple of days. And we hang out. One of my friends who orchestrated me coming back in has advanced MS. He's a very sick man. And uh, we got down there for a planned trip. We usually go to a Royals game and we go to, you know, Top Golf and do some other fun stuff. And he just loves hanging out with us. He's a complete quadriplegic. But when we got there, we realized he was in trouble. His wife was gone, but he was in real trouble. And we, had, we ended up in the hospital in emergency with him. 
And it was just completely discombobulated the trip. But more importantly, God, because of that, he was in the emergency. Because of that, just he and I had a full hour, just him and I talking. And it was tearful, and we cried. And he told me he loved me, and he hugged me. He was very tender toward the gospel. Now, I didn't risk anything for that. My life wasn't certainly threatened. But we have brothers and sisters around the world right now as we speak that are dying for their faith. Are you willing to live for yours in obedience? Obedience to God is more important than the risks you take. It's more important than the accusations you face. Just the other day, I was falsely accused of something I did not do. But Jesus said, woe unto you when all men speak well of you. I didn't say, oh, great, wonderful, fulfillment of prophecy. No, it hurt. But obeying God is more important than the accusations you face. Has your obedience to Jesus produced any opposition? That's the question I would have for you. Has it produced any opposition? The Apostle Paul said that, yea, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, right? Your obedience to God is more important than the sacrifices you make. And we, again, this is, these are points we made a year ago, but I reminded you the American dream is based on sacrifices we make for ourselves in the pursuit of power and prestige, pleasure and comfort. And against all of that, Samuel said, to obey God is better than sacrifice, right? So, for the balance of our time this morning, from this passage we just read in John 14, from Jesus' own words, before he suffered in his supreme act of obedience, this, these words he said at the table where Judas would leave, hours later he would hang suspended on a cross. And I want to say to you, obedience to Christ from this passage is the mark of a true lover of Christ. And Jesus says it. Look at it. If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. And then verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he, she, you are the one who loves me. And you who love me will be loved by my Father. And I'll love you. And I'll manifest, I'll display myself to you. Loving Jesus is inextricably tied to obeying him. Let me say it again. Loving Jesus is inextricably tied to obeying him. And there's no way around it. And this is the reason why A.W. Tozer said, the Lord will not save those he cannot command. You say, well, loving Jesus, that sounds kind of squishy, doesn't it? I mean, do you love Jesus? Nobody ever thought about loving somebody in the first century the way we think of it today. How important is it to love Jesus? Well, I think he's telling us here, is he not? And the Apostle Paul actually concluded his lengthy epistle to the Corinthians who were you know, completely theologically and spiritually discombobulated. He finished his letter to them by saying, if anyone does not love the Lord, let him be cursed. Let him be damned. 
I'd say loving Jesus is pretty important. So obedience to Christ is the mark of a true lover of Christ. Secondly, it's the avenue for true growth in Christ. Now, John 14, verses 16 through 20 is a whole, a whole teaching of the Holy Spirit. Who He says, if you love me, you keep my commandments, and I, and I will send the helper to you. You say, well, if I obey God, that's the, that's the, if I obey God, I get the Holy Spirit. Yes, that's what Jesus is saying. You say, wait a minute. I thought the Holy Spirit came when I believed on the Lord Jesus. He does. But some of you have not really obeyed the gospel. The Apostle Paul in Romans starts the book of Romans and ends the book of Romans with the phrase, obey the gospel. Did you know that? Remember, if the word obey means to, to listen, it means to hear, it means to come into, it means to give your full attention to, your heart to. You are obeying the gospel when you surrender your heart to the person and the work of Jesus who died and rose again for you. And when you do that, the Spirit of God comes to live with you in you, makes his abode with you, begins to open up under your understanding. Earlier in John's gospel, Jesus said, I have lots of things to teach you, but you can't bear them now. But we're talking about the avenue for true growth in Christ is obedience. Is that verifiable? Yes, it is. Psalm 111, verse 10 says this, a good understanding have those who do his commandments. Have you ever read that? I'll give it to you again. A good understanding have all those who do your commandments. Notice the connection between depth and, and obedience. Paul said to Philemon in verse 6, I pray that you would be active in sharing your faith so that you may have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. You see the juxtaposition there? Listen to what the great Oswald Chambers said. This is one of the, this is one of the most profound quotes I have personally, for myself, ever read. I give it to you. Take a shot of it with your camera if you want. The golden rule for understanding spiritually is not intellect, but obedience. Spiritual darkness comes because of something I do not intend to obey. Watch the things you shrug your shoulders over. What a line. And you will know why you do not go on spiritually. Surely, obedience to Christ is the avenue for true growth in him. Thirdly, obedience to Christ is the proof one is a true child of God. The very end of this section we read in verse 24, Jesus says, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. He doesn't qualify that. I mean, that, you don't keep his words, you don't love him. So he basically flipped it from the positive to the negative. The scariest passage in all of the Bible, in my personal opinion, occurs in Matthew chapter 7. I'll quote it to you, and then I'll put a line up there, which, to be candid, has always troubled me. It doesn't trouble me anymore. 
But it's the scariest passage in all of the Bible because it relates to some of you and to those of you watching online. So please, listen carefully. I'll quote it to you. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of God, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will come to me in that day saying, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Done many wonderful works in your name? And I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's the scariest passage in all the Bible. It's scary because it's talking about a mass of people who think they're going to go to heaven and they're going to lay out all these reasons they're going, and they're not. The line that has always troubled me is where he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And then this line, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. (laughs) Jesus, couldn't you just say, but he who believes in the one the Father sent? Because he said that in other times, right? But rather, he, he ties it to our obedience. John Piper wrote a book several years ago on the commands of Jesus. And it was predicated on a thought that he had contemplating the Great Commission, which says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then he says, what? Teaching them to study? Teaching them to what? Observe all things I've commanded you. That's, we're teaching people to obey Why? Why would Jesus tell us this in the Great Commission? Let me tell you why. Because intrinsic to the gospel, the real gospel that Christ died and rose again, and if we have received it, intrinsic in the gospel is the power of God to obey. If a man or a woman lays claim to Jesus and does not obey him and indeed refuses to do so, mark him, mark her as an unbeliever. Because God, as Tozer says, doesn't save those he can't command. Very popular and scary in this generation is what has been called deconversion. Anybody ever heard of it? Sometimes it's listed amongst deconstructionism. Some really good stuff out there on it. It's basically a loss of faith. It's the reason all kinds of entertainers raised in churches like this have rejected the faith. And not a few theologians and pastors, some of our own kids, some of your kids have rejected the faith, embraced deviant, aberrant lifestyles. Because as one individual said to me, I guess I just don't fit in anymore. And he didn't. Why is this? Why is this happening? And why are people leaving the faith in droves? I don't have all the reasons, but I can give you a few, not the least of which is God told us this would happen. That evil men and imposters will wax worse and worse. Have you ever read that? So 
there. But let me just list four other reasons. This is not complete, but it's the ones that I think are the most uh, logical, biblical, and true. The first one is they were never saved. Those who lose their faith, walk away from the faith, say they don't believe in Christianity, they're not Christians anymore, they were never saved to begin with. And that can be affirmed where John says in 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out. That it might be made manifest or clear that they were not all of us. Have you read that? That's what John said. So the first and most obvious reason would be that they were never saved to begin with. Secondly, the second reason I think people are deconstructing, they're deconverting, is because they were offered and accepted a shallow, therapeutic, damnable way of salvation. That's not salvation at all. This is the Joel Osteen salvation. The pray the prayer generation. Jesus said, enter the narrow gate. For narrow is the gate. Hard is the way that leads to eternal life. And few there be that go that way. The large amount go the broad way that leads to what? Destruction. That's what Jesus said. I didn't say that. And I think that one of the reasons young people are deconstructing is because they have, been, they have accepted a very shallow theology of salvation that isn't salvation at all. Thirdly, I think the third reason is because Bible-believing churches, and by Bible-believing, I'm talking about churches out there whose doctrinal statement, what they have in print, you and I could probably sign off on. But their pulpits are so pathetically weak where saints, or the ain'ts, whichever they are, they're not taught persevering grace. The reformers got it. They understood that if you are really saved, they believed in a thing called the perseverance of the saints. And that doesn't mean you're pulling your bootstraps up. It means that you understand the grace of God in your life, and it will get you through the tough times because life is hard. Amen? Sometimes you want to throw it all in. Am I right? Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes we doubt. Sometimes we wonder, what the heck is going on here? But the grace of God prevails. Amen? And sustains us. His grace is sufficient for you. His strength made perfect in my weakness. Right? The Apostle Paul, coming back from a missionary journey, Acts 14, he says, it is through great tribulation that we have to enter into the kingdom of God. Have you read that? Why would he do that? Because they were new Christians and they needed to hear persevering grace. And I'm telling you, we got a whole generation of softies who do not get the, the true gospel and they just think everything is to be handed to them. Is it any wonder that they're just chucking it all? They're not taught that the grace of God that saves them is the grace of God that will strengthen them and it'll strengthen you. 
and me. Amen? And the fourthly, I would just say that they might be doubters rather than deniers. It doesn't, I, in other words, what I'm saying is we don't know that they're genuinely lost. They've made a profession of faith. 2 Timothy 2, 19, the, the seal of God is sure. Here's the seal. The Lord knows those who are his. That's what I fall back on. And James tells us, if you know somebody who is doubting, James says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Go out there and bring him back. That's our job. Bring them back as brands snatched from the fire and pray and never give up praying for your lost ones, for your loved ones. Some of your children have walked away from the faith and your hearts are broken. They may not be saved. They may have bought into a bill of garbage for faith and it might just be that they're struggling in this doubting generation. May God have mercy on them and on you as you wait for God to come through. The good news to us who know Jesus and yet are fearful about the ability to obey God, man, obedience, I mean, what? you don't have to sweat it out. It's in you. He is in you. It is God, Paul said to the Philippians, who is at work in you both to do, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. I love that. It is God, if you know him, because some of you don't. But if you do, it is God who is at work in you. God is at work in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Hallelujah! Praise the Lord for that. When Jesus washed his disciples' feet in John 13, in this very same context... He looked up and he said, I've given you an example to do this yourself. And if you do it, happy are you. He uses a word which means happy. That's a feeling. And we like good feelings. Amen? You want a good feeling? Know God. Obey him. And finally, a word. Remember, the word obey pictures it literally conveys the idea of responding to somebody knocking at a door. And we already said that. That's, yeah, somebody knocks at the door, you drop what you're doing, you go to the door, right? Is somebody knocking at yours? You know where I'm going, don't you? Behold, I stand at your door and knock. If you'll what? That, that, that's the idea of obedience right there. If you'll hear my voice, you open that door, you let me in, I'll sit down with you, we'll enjoy eternal fellowship, and you will have the strength and the power and the ability, all meaning the same, to live a life honors God in a soft generation with obedience. Let's pray. Our Father, as we prepare for the Lord's table, 
and the supreme act of obedience where Jesus obeyed you and came to this world and lived a perfect life, tempted in every way as I was, tempted in every way as everyone in this room or watching online has been tempted. But unlike the rest of us, never failed. And it's all pictured in the bread of the Lord's table. What a powerful symbol, the perfect life of Jesus. We thank you for his perfect life, for battling for us in perfect obedience. And we thank you, Lord, that he took upon himself all of our disobedience, all of our sin, and died for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. As picted in the juice, your blood shed for us. Help us as we examine ourselves and contemplate areas in our lives that we might hmm, shrug our shoulders at and come to realize this is why we don't go on. But you'll help us, Lord, if we're confident to that end. As we pray to that end, in Jesus' name, amen.